0: Hello and welcome to Hell Is for It's for July 2011. I am writer hyphen critic hyphen carrier monkey from outbreak during this cold and flu season. Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is
1: hi there. I'm uh, Paul Anthony Nelson, uh, writer hyphen director hyphen karate kicking MMA star who's in an action movie. I'm just keeping up the Soderbergh theme here. And our special guest villain for this week is. Month S- rather.
2: Uh, Simon Morado, uh, critic hyphen unshaven Perthian hyphen uh, girlfriend experience extraordinaire. Oh. We're doing Soderbergh. I don't. Yeah, know. We got from an outbreak to, to Soderbergh pretty quickly. But uh, I want you to know, Lesnar, he's currently sitting on a bed. I'm not I am. I'm straddling a bed as I as I look <laughs> at our co-hosts. It's the only, it's actually, the, it was in my contract. It's my rider. It's the only way I'll be on a podcast is if I can straddle something. It's very alluring. Thank you. It's going to
0: throw me off. Well, all good things must come to an end. And I'm not closing off the podcast. I'm talking about Harry Potter. Part 8 of the 7-part series has just come <laughs> out. A lot of uh, childhoods are coming to an end. Is your, your childhood, you're, you're what, 15,
2: 12? I am. Uh, mm. I'll be 15 in the summer. Okay, good. No, <laughs> I am I I'm 23. I'm 23, but his I was actually... voice is still breaking. Yes, it is. Uh, you, you joke, but my voice is actually still breaking. Uh, but actually, yeah, I grew up reading the Harry Potter books. I was about his age for books three to five. Good Lord. So, Wow. Yeah, so it is a bit of my, my childhood coming to an end. Um, mm. Four years too late, perhaps. <laughs> five years <laughs> too late. And
0: how did you feel, like, movie-wise, you know? Um,
2: I really liked it. I, I, I really liked uh, Part 8. I, I don't think it's the generation-defining spectacular finale that it is to other people mm. perhaps I I didn't love it mm. and and I think that's I think the film the series as a whole it's a lot of really good films I don't think any of them are truly great uh, except maybe three Prisoner of Azkaban Three's or, or Goblet of Fire which I do quite like I, I think it's a very uh, it's a really solid saga and I really do like those uh, final few films mm. but uh, I, I wasn't weeping with the uh the audience, the audience I was with actually was openly kind of exclaiming and just kind of crying out. It was like being a primal scream therapy. It was bizarre. <laughs> no, that wasn't just the 3D having an effect on them. Well, you actually, in our cinema, the lights didn't go down for about 25 minutes. So, uh, the uh, it gave a very nice uh, muted effect to the already dim 3D. It was somebody had uttered <laughs> luminous before. That. Is, yeah. that, is that yeah. it? Did I get that? Yeah. <laughs> Score. Um, I, I love the fact that
1: it's the, the, the greyest, blackest film visually ever. And it's decide let's put the 3D on this because you know 3D doesn't make anything darker and harder to see. Um, yeah, look, I think except until you started talking about Goblet of Fire, I thought you were bang on, Simon. Um, <laughs> it's it's um, yeah, it's arpaths. <laughs> Come on. It's a funny thing about that series is yeah, is that none of them are. I don't think any of them are truly great, but they're but most of them are really really good, and I think that this one is no exception. But I, I think you're right, Simon, in that it does it lacks that little bit of. Um, and maybe it's because I'm older and because the series isn't quite as connected to me as those 10 years younger than me, that it's just not as, um, yeah, not as the, not the gut punch that I was kind of looking for. You know, not the kind mm-hmm. of the weepy catharsis that you're kind of like, oh, these characters are leaving. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like, oh, that's nice. And then you sort of, you know, get to the end. But but look, it's a hell of a time,
0: um, it, on a par with the last film with Punt. Seven point one. I'm I'm a huge fan of the books and I, I really like the films, but it's always something that hasn't sat quite right for me. And it took only took this last film for me to figure out what that was. And I think a lot of it is with David Yates. I think uh, he does the micro and the macro really well. I, in terms of the micro, I think individual scenes, particularly the opening five minutes of this film, he just he evokes a mood and you know get, pulls that emotion out in a way that few other directors can. I think he's great at those individual scenes. In terms of the macro, I think everything works overall as, as the series in terms of the seven films. I just think it's that mid-range, the films themselves don't really work for me. I commend it for what they're able to achieve in terms of ageing these kids throughout the series, keeping with them. So you do feel that emotional connection because you saw them when they were, you know, whatever it was, 10 years old. So it does, you do feel something that they're that older where, where that a recasting would not give you. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I love the series. I love individual scenes. The films themselves leave me a bit cold. Uh, Just the fact that
1: they've managed to keep the cast together and keep this
0: all, you know, keep this machine
1: moving has been through eight, and for Warner Brothers to have the faith to keep backing these eight films. And I can't think of
2: any other eight film series where it's one story. Mm. I'm not talking about eight Bond films, I'm talking about one giant story Mm. and an eighth film to be this good in that story. That's fair enough. For it to. Best part eight ever? (laughs) Well, hang on, <laughs> I mean
0: hang on, what was Friday the 13th Jason takes Manhattan oh that was a classic uh, <laughs> rubbish from a very British saga to a very American one the final part of the Avengers prequel series but seriously I honestly think that this is the first time people have made the prequels before so they're not sequels they're prequels to, to a film the Avengers. but they've made them first
2: it's yeah, they're, kind they're, of mind-bending they're called I just way. think they're the Marvel <laughs> series the Marvel series yeah what did we think? I really liked it I thought it was a lot of fun. I it's totally jingoistic, mm. uh, but that's fine, uh, in in a small doses. <laughs> and yeah. it's at least you know the the American jingoism isn't as blatant as the Nazi villainous jingoism as you would hope. Yes, in a film like this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that was a wise move. <laughs> yes, it breath, not pro Nazi. Brave choice yeah. by Joe Johnston there yeah. <laughs> um, to go in that direction. Uh, look, I thought it was a lot of fun. I really like Chris Evans as the captain. I thought the action sequences were really enjoyable. I think it kind of harked back to Johnston's work on the Indiana Jones series Mm. and and Star Wars. I thought it was just really nice, good, wholesome fun You know, in contrast to the kind of moral ambiguity and complexity of the Batman films and even to a degree, Iron Man, or at least that character. Mm. And I don't think we should always hope for these kind of films where they're kind of very simple. It's a very, you know, no gray area. It's just good and bad. I don't think we should strive to have a lot of films like these Mm. come out. Uh, but you know, as it was, I think it was it was a fun, nice time. It sounds like it's good to
1: it's good to have that sort of thing occasionally, and this is the perfect character to do that with, particularly in World War Two against the Nazis. Right. You know, because yeah. really, who's going to be barricading for the other side
2: against the Nazis? They're not even the Nazis. Like that's how evil the Hugo even. They're worse than, than the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. yeah Even well, the, uh, na- even Hitler like thinks that this guy's <laughs> going too far. <laughs> so. <Yeah. laughs>
1: maybe you should back <laughs> off what <laughs> you're doing chill out man
0: what did you think Le? well look I thought I honestly think the, f- think the first two thirds are better than anything Marvel's done yet I think it's the most look I, I, I've never read a Captain America comic in my life and I always thought that it would never work as a movie I never thought they could make it because Captain America seemed like this he, he had to be this perfect symbol so he wasn't interesting as a character I assumed and he, his costume looked silly so he would never work on screen from the trailers i thought my god the costume looks fantastic And when i realized it was a story about how uh somebody who has not been strong their entire life is the person who can now carry the strength it's like okay that's a hook that's a hell of an interesting story and because i think they worked so hard at it, the f- yeah I, I was more i've been a big fan of the film so far but i was more engaged with his emotional journey than with any other main character complete change of pace now to the illusionist uh, from, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce his name, because not only do Sylvain I... Sylvain Chomet. Thank you. Uh, who made The Amazing Triplets of Belleville, uh, which is one of those films that gets better on every viewing, I mm. think. Uh, and it's from a something found in the bottom drawer of Jacques Tati. And uh, What a Marriage Made in Heaven. Those two, it's perfect. It's I'd, perfect marriage. i
1: take issue with this film.
0: Yeah?
1: i to take issue right now. Go for it. People told well, more, not so much with the film, but with people. People told me this was charming, lovely, sweet. Then I saw it. <laughs> this thing is fucking new Hollywood bleak. This this film put me in a hole I did not emerge from for about four hours. It is horrific. It's I mean it's it's beautifully done. There's some charm in there, yeah. but my god it's 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 message and its uh and its delivery and this inherent sadness in everything
0: it's pretty heartbreaking it
1: is an absolutely shattering film um i'd have to say though i uh, maybe it's my natural i'm not so much an animation guy i feel that if it was in live action i would have been inconsolable yeah. for hours and hours being animated, I was merely depressed. Okay, <laughs> that's all right. Now that's a to quote. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, look, I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit facetious there, but it's no, it's. Uh, yeah, I thought this film was fantastic. I thought mm. it was absolutely essential, but just not what I expected at all. I did not expect something so, um, so, un-
2: unwaveringly dark. Yeah. Uh, actually, I actually, I missed the the screening of it to come to Melbourne. To, to be on the, specifically to be on this podcast. So I haven't oh, seen it yet and it's been killing me it's because it's our fault. It is your fault and I am holding you directly <laughs> responsible for that for that choice I made. Um it, look, it's been killing me because I mean this film has been basically raved about for almost two years now. I think it's well it's we saw it a year ago at Miff Right. Like so almost to the day a year ago. Okay. Yeah. So a year and a half maybe when it first started debuting Sure know, yeah. at Khan or, or whenever but um it sounds fantastic. Lee um yeah oh, yeah like love it. Love it. It's
0: heartbreaking and it's beautiful but it's just God, I wouldn't change the frame of it.
2: Yeah, it's
1: delicate. It's considered. It's quiet. It's. I mean, there's no. um, There's barely any dialogue. Is there any dialogue in the film? Occasionally, there's mumbled, kind of garbled lines of broken. Like the peanuts teacher,
0: the teacher.
1: Charlie Brown's teacher. Yeah.
0: yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Is that is that Perthian? That's Perthian. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, I was getting a transmission from, uh, <laughs> from the mother yeah. from, the, from the
1: mother country. Uh the motherland. But it's an absolute triumph, but uh, if you see it, god go prepared with yeah. um with um tissues or at least do something happy beforehand or afterwards, immediately.
0: Another film I think is definitely worth checking out is Hannah with uh Eric Banner, uh Soror- Sororius. I'm gonna Soror- say... Hang, <laughs> on, Hang on. on, let see me see let me get there. Sure. Shrosh Shro that girl from mm. that other film. <laughs>
2: I mean that's <laughs> that's a dialect pronouncement. Yeah, that is. Yeah,
0: Shush. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Shoshi for short.
2: No, how do you say it? Shoshi. Searsha. Seasha.
0: you You kidding? Searsha. Searsha, oh. That's so so gorgeous. you pronounce the R, so it's Searsha. Searcha. Oh, that's beautiful. Sh mm. Ronan. Uh, Ronan, is that correct? Ronan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Ronar. Uh, Ronar. And Kate Ron-na. Blanchett, who uh, has been getting a lot of flack for her over the top role, oh. which I thought was note perfect. I loved it. Absolutely. I yeah. agree.
1: It's that, for me, it's between her in. Between Blanchett in Hannah and Jeffrey Wright in Source Code. Yes. I. Defend these performances no. to the hell These guys, oh look now, come on. These guys are such serious, committed, brilliant actors. Let them let their damn hair down every once in a while. When, just when the film calls be, for it, yeah, yeah. When, yeah. <laughs> just let them get crazy. I, <laughs> I, lo- I loved Blanchett in this. The, the, the accent, the, com- the, the <laughs> composure. But it's, I've, I've heard of this being described, and I have to agree. As it's almost a comic book movie. In the way it's shot and framed mm. and its characters, it's very even down to who Hannah, what Hannah is. It's
0: very, it's not so much a spy movie or an action movie as, as a comic book it, movie. It felt like a modern day fairy tale to me. It's interesting you say the comic book, but because mm. I was watching it, thinking, hang on, this is a that's the wolf character, that's the little red, you know, not yep. not one specific fairy tale, mm. but a whole sort of mishmash of them, and, and as you get towards the end. Uh, is it Joe Wright? Yeah. Yeah, it really drives home those metaphors. I oh, was I was lapping it up. I I, I really loved it. Yeah. Yeah. D-
1: um and the the Chemical Brothers score works great. Um and but there's there's lots of really interesting motifs with the visuals. Like we go from the trees yeah. to the to the um like the forest and then when she's running through the underground portals and they've got the vertical, yeah, vertical yeah, yeah. columns and it almost looks like it's
0: the forest again. Oh nice spot. And
1: yeah. and, and all of this sort of um, imagery that kept coming up within the film, even the titles are kind of those sort of columns as well. It's yeah. Um, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a blast, but there was something missing, and I can't put my finger on what it yes. was. There's it's just something that it felt an absolute like just a sliver short of being great. There is it, a
0: Genesee Ronan that's not quite there. You know that's something. Yeah, exactly. That's stopping it from being great. Anita needed mm-hmm. Jeffrey
2: Wright. Eating the scenery, yeah. With a cane, talking like this, yes. with the cane. That's the only yeah. <laughs> way.
1: There is a survey taken recently uh, that showed something that Australians have known intrinsically for some time now, but has never actually been in black and white, and that is that we pay more for movie tickets than anyone else in the world. Uh, there was a screening of Thor in the first week that I saw. It was during a peak time. It was in three D and it was in Hoyt's uh largest Cinemax screen and it cost twenty four dollars. And apparently the Americans average American movie ticket averages
0: somewhere between eight and ten dollars. I've got the I've got the averages here. Yep. Uh the UK will pay eight dollars ninety eight on average. New Zealand will pay eight dollars eighty five. The US will play will pay approximately seven dollars forty. And Australians pay approximately $12.89. Now, we're paying significantly more than the others, but i tell you what, if all my cinema tickets cost $12.89, I wouldn't be complaining. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and also, also worth noting that in the US, and, and I, I, I guess Britain, and I'm not really sure, they have matinee s- discounts. Mm. So if you see a film in the middle of the day between 12 and 4, you're seeing it for like $4 or $5. Mm, yeah. Or if you see a film after a few weeks, it is cheaper. We don't have that. We're locked into your adult's. Mm. Do you think it's air freight to get the prints over here, or do you think it's... uh, It can't be. It it can't be something Mm. like that, because we're not paying three times as much for everything else that's being... I mean, well, actually, maybe you can make that case, because, you know, books are outrageously expensive. Yeah, um, that's true. um, Because there has to be a reason, surely. I mean, or is it just a a conglomeration? I mean,
1: because it's not like... Australian uh, exhibition is not a... um, is not a monopoly. We have competitors. We've got Village, we've got Hoyts, we've got mm. Palace, we've got independent cinemas and what have you. Um, so, competition is there,
0: but they're not trying to undercut each other of anything. They're trying to raise. It's weird. And wasn't it's, there it's a it's study like saying... Each other. There, was, there was another study saying we were the piracy capital of the world. Now, I'm, I'm not one to say that we're justified in stealing mm. things because they're expensive, you know, not when it's, you know, entertainment. I don't I don't think we can really make that case, but if you're trying to quash piracy and have people, yeah. you know, actually go and pay for the product, you you are be, you are ripping them off. That's not a good way to go about it. Exactly. And, you know, there's a lot of
1: people who see like with most films being geared at 15 to 25 year olds these
2: days, you know, a lot of that a lot of those
1: are students and students can't afford $20 to go to the movies.
2: And, you know, just to, you know, play devil's advocate, where the cinemas and the distributors do feel like they have to make a relatively similar amount of money back but on one you know, 20th of the screens. Well, we have... And we have a 10th the population
0: of yes. the US. So but yeah. the other thing is, why is New Zealand cheaper than us? Well, yeah. It's significantly cheaper than us. Well, is that... And have got a fifth a of the population. Is that you thing? There might be a chicken and egg thing going, uh, yeah. whereas, you know, we pirate because... Yes. I ...it's think so much, but they they charge so much to to offset the piracy.
1: Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. Chicken, egg, cup, for horse. Oh, yeah, it's any one of those metaphors. And that's it's why they're not <laughs> backing
0: down, because I think if they back down, we're still going to pirate, because we're used to it now, and not me personally, but you know, Yeah, no, but I think that's almost a
1: crazy argument. It's like, well, why don't you lower prices and see what happens? Because they've done this before. They've lowered prices to an, to an
0: excellently absurd degree and then pumped them up It again. might not be an experiment in which they make a lot less money, might not be one they're willing to... But, take. but that's the thing because there was there, were, there was a period i remember
1: about 10 15 years ago um when movie tickets had gotten to sort of the 12 13 14 dollar range and they decided we'll give the uh the audiences a break for a little while and we'll charge 750 and at one point tickets plummeted to $7.50 all sessions and that lasted for a good year or maybe year year and a half and then then they got pumped up again and now they're up to this Extreme amounts like, well, why not take the gamble again? Why not make tickets 1250? Ma- Did it $10? work? Did it? Do we well, know? Uh, I know a lot of people that went to the cinemas at the time. Yeah. I mean, but again, but it's also, to too, though, there were less uh, outlets as well. This was before, well, there was no sort of internet mm. that your average home had any sort of access to. Yeah, um, I mean, there was the video rental market, but I think this was even possibly before DVD, so it's a completely different landscape we're looking at here, yeah, yeah. whether that's beneficial I mean and that's the thing it's like they're under siege from so many corners now like yeah it's not only piracy it's DVD and it's you know and it's legitimate digital downloads yeah. it's iTunes it's I was about to say Netflix and Hulu but we don't have those we, we have, have Quick flicks. yeah <laughs> don't, don't, don't we Simon <laughs> insert plug here yeah. no I won't, I won't go there
2: <laughs> but you know it's interesting Like you, you mentioned that because you know a hit film in Australia or a, a very big hit film makes 40 million you know and say The Hangover Part 2 which isn't in 3D so it's just mm. regular pricing if if they were to take this gamble and to lower the prices across the board of ticketing to three quarters of the price or or half the price was seven dollars fifty, suddenly a hit film becomes twenty million dollars. Or do, or do more people go? Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Or are you going to make that twenty million dollar trade? Uh, are you going to make that twenty million dollar bet? If you and
1: that's the thing, it couldn't. It might not be twenty million. It might be thirty, but right. you're still making ten
0: million less. So it's the kind of debate we really need somebody like a distributor here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> no, I, th- I, th- no I think we're all
1: sufficiently uninformed to continue yeah. it ourselves. Okay, cool. Um, well, <laughs> we can, t- we can it. solve it right here. There was a
2: report recently showing that even the prices for the cinemas, <laughs> for the cinemas to buy prints of a certain length, you know, mm. up to 90 minutes, 120 minutes, mm. three hours, even that is among the highest prices in the world. So who is, who's the one doing the gouging here?
1: again, uh, not being an exhibitor, I don't know how happy they are with the kind of crowds they're getting at the moment. But if they are happy and you know, what's gonna make they wouldn't you know, what's gonna make them back down? They're like, Oh yeah, we're getting pirated, but we're making a ton of money. We made forty million on the hangover, so hey. Well,
0: we sort of need, I people, mean there's enough p-
1: suckers willing to pay twenty bucks to get it. We need more this.
0: people to be aware of it and maybe if, you know, people are more vocal, I don't know wh- how you could demonstrate oh. your unhappiness at, at paying more than, than our overseas cousins. Yeah because we're already doing it
2: according to the survey about piracy. We're already complaining by pirating. There could be so no bigger protest <laughs> than not going to a cinema and illegally stealing a film exactly. to watch it. It's, really, it's actually really sad. I feel for you know my sisters who have, who have young kids and they want to yeah. go see you know Cars 2 or whatever, yeah. and there's four of them, yeah. and they can't find a 2D session because cinemas pay an exorbitant amount to get 3D projectors, so they want to get their money off of it. Yeah. So four people going to a movie's even if it's even if they're getting popcorn each, you're still looking at like a hundred plus dollars. Yeah, no. It's a family as outing, a families, it's a giant thing. But if it was ten dollars a ticket, it was forty dollars. They could go and see Kung Fu Panda two as well. Mm. But there's no way they can a family can do that, can mm. make the investment for their kids to see multiple children's films. Yeah. But they'll
1: do it, and just you know that's the thing. And they, they always yeah. do it. It's the paradoxical part of this that there are still millions of people just ponying up the price. They will just go and pay, you know, and. Whether it's they miss out on another outing for the week or something, they'll, they'll suck it up. So, as long as they're sucking it up, cinema, like the e- exhibitors or whoever's setting the price, it's like, well, they can clearly pay it. So, why don't we squeeze them a little more?
0: Simon,
2: please, we would love to know whom you have picked for your Hellers for Hyphenates filmmaker of the month. The filmmaker I've chosen, there were a lot that I kind of ran through my mind, but I wanted to pick someone a bit, a bit classy you guys and i wanted to pick a filmmaker that uh, i'm a big fan of maybe not 100 percent familiar with and that in the time between choosing them and doing the podcast i could catch up on their oeuvre, mm. and i didn't do that <laughs> so i'm just going to be wildly uh, uninformed but i've chosen akira kurosawa brilliant filmmaker obviously i don't think that's going to be a new revelation from uh, our, our discussion tonight but I, I love him i love the films that i've seen of his and i think it's phenomenal that this guy has basically you know without him there is no Star Wars, there is no The Man With No Name trilogy, there is, you know, he inspired Robert Altman, Quentin Tarantino, he, he made a film about a subject that there was no name for that subject, so now when people refer to it, they refer to his movie as the name of that subject, a Rashomon incident, yeah. or a Rashomon Which situation. Which pretty crazy. That's pretty phenomenal that he can coin an entire scenario Absolutely. like that.
1: And that a Japanese word has become part of the American language. Sure. You Post know. so close to, you know, the war as well is, is <laughs> something, it, it blows my mind. Um, yeah, you think of the other, the No Magnificent Seven. No? Really no Bug's Life? Yeah. <laughs> That's very important to me. <laughs> no Ransom.
0: <laughs> That's true, yeah. But yeah, you're, you're right, because I've been going through them, and, uh, you know, I had seen some Kurosawa beforehand, and absolutely loved it, but again, watching these films in the context of his career, and I re those films, and I watched ones I hadn't seen before. Um, I wasn't sure whether to say this at the beginning or the end of the podcast, but I'll say it now. Uh, at about a quarter of the way into my watching, he became one of my three favourite filmmakers of all time. Uh, I think he's probably, objectively, the greatest filmmaker of all time, uh, bypassing my beloved Hitchcock. Wow. I was just... I, my jaw was on the floor with every film I put on. It's been the most intense, you know, month and a bit of watching his films, and
2: I'm glad my choice has inspired such greatness. But I do have to apologise for not doing nearly as much homework (laughs) as the two of you. It's been a busy month. (laughs) I thought he was all about.
0: I got to say, I I thought he was all about um, samurai films, and it was fine to go along. You know, years ago when I first saw Seven Samurai, I was like, wow, that is. You know, people call Seven Samurai the greatest film of all time and I frankly think they're underselling it. But, um, <laughs> you know, Samurai Epics, I thought that's what Kurosawa was about and having seen his other films, having seen his melodramas yeah. and just his flat-out dramas I think and his, his noirs. His versatility puts him over Hitchcock. He can do anything. Yes, is. absolutely.
1: Yeah. It's, I, I think he's in terms of versatility, the only guy that probably begins to match him is someone like Howard Hawks. I think that's he
0: possibly his only peer
1: in terms of being... Sp- so brilliant in so many genres.
0: It was like watching early Hitchcock, watching his first film in from '43, Senshiro *Shigato*, which is you know the the judo versus jujitsu. Yeah, uh, <laughs> who the, knew there was a rivalry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <it> was, <laughs> he, his style, even though you know he refined it over the years, you could see a guy who knew exactly what he was doing with the camera from the moment he stepped yeah. out of the gate. I think he's learning too, though. Like uh, yeah. he, he logged some time as a uh,
1: as an uh, assistant director. And his first four films are all clearly the education of Akira Kurosawa. They're all war. They're all made during wartime. They're all sort of propagandistic in one point or another. Um, like sort of showing how great the Japanese way is in terms of whether it be judo or whether it be the um, the 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 noble soldiers in the Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail. Yeah, yeah. Um, or whether it be blatantly propagandistic, like. Like the judo fighter beating the boxer in Sanjuro Sagata Part Two, or whether it's the other women working at the munitions factory in the optics factory in um, The Most Beautiful. He's already got a style of, of creating personable characters, of making them making the mythic and the and the idealistic personal. Uh, that was something I got from the early yeah. films. You can see that he's kind of forced into it.
2: Yeah. These aren't none of these stories feel like his story. Well a uh, Propaganda in general doesn't seem like it's his bag. And I haven't seen yeah. those earlier films, but it's kind of intri- intriguing because, you know, I think of Kurosawa, I think of films that are about the dishonour of honourable, so-called honourable things, mm. like being a samurai or being a king or, you know, just being a good man and, and how hard that is. Well, and so, version does creep through a bit, even really? in this propaganda. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh,
1: the Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail is this very kind of, it's an hour-long film and, Forty minutes of it is one set piece. Yeah, it's it's one giant as they're trying to trying to get through this roadblock by convincing these people that they're priests, and and the the various twists and turns that take place when that one set piece. It's like yeah, this giant set piece that propels the entire film. But it's the the film isn't necessarily all about that. You know, it's just yeah, it, it it's something that of modern filmmakers today. Tarantino is someone that's taken that up. He shows due reverence to this, because it was a very famous Japanese story. But then he kind of added this rubbery-faced comical character <laughs> to kind of provide a little Greek chorus and help them out and kind of undercut and take the piss out yeah. of the whole
0: thing. And It's the most amount of gurning I've ever seen in a single film. Oh, <laughs> <ever>. <laughs> it's amazing. It's just complete, um, what are you, uh, mugging. I think right after that film is when he really started to destroy... The genres he was in, like I mean, he was, he was taking them over. You look at guys like who I love, like Ozu and Mizuguchi, who are the Japanese masters of melodrama, mm. and they're fantastic at them. And I think films like you know No Regrets for Our Youth in forty six or One Wonderful Sunday in forty seven, I think they're the height of melodrama. I think they're perfect examples of. I mean, they're just staggeringly good films yeah i i'm not a melodrama guy i just Mm. something
1: about the style just rubs me the wrong way unless it's in a horror movie i don't know uh but yeah no regrets for our youth um is while it while it is incredibly topical in its subject matter it does follow the melodrama structure to the letter and um and i think it's i think it's a perfectly fine example of a melodrama so if I liked melodrama, I would probably say, yeah, he hit that shit
0: out but of the park. It's pretty amazing if you see it as an, the my reading of it was that it's an indictment of his own uh, complicity in making propaganda films. You know, that's that's my reading of it. Again, no, I, I think that's, words into his mouth.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's fairly. Um, I think that's fairly clear. Um, once you start to read up on what he, well, you know how his involvement in making propaganda films transpired and mm-hmm. the fact that he was quite reluctant, I think once you find that out, then you then you watch. If you watch our uh, No Regrets for Youth with that knowledge, as yeah. you did, you start to see that. But the film that crept up on me—I—I I was so pressed for time putting this together, uh, and watching like watching all these films for this uh, podcast um, amongst myth and work and what have you—I almost skipped one wonderful Sunday because <laughs> I'd never heard of it, and uh, nobody's really mentioned it. And, oh, maybe I'll just go on to more famous stuff. This film slayed me. Yeah, it is beautiful. It is. Capra-esque, but n- neo-realist
0: as oh, well. I was gonna—I've got it written down. Yeah, you yeah. Beat <laughs> Italians to neo-realism. Yeah, um, like I'll have to check my dates. What's the premise of this one? Uh, it, it's basically uh, a guy and a girl um, spending a day together, having a day. But date. they've got— but they're broke. they no have they've, they've got thirty-five yen between them, and this it's is about the thing. post-war Japan, but it isn't at the same it's, time. It
1: becomes yeah, and this is the thing. This is the first look at what would become Kurosawa's obsession for about the next 10 years, and that is the state of post-war Japan. Mm. You can see he kind of believes in a lot of Western values, but he also doesn't necessarily believe in getting rid of all the old japanese values as well like he's he's very much a, a kind of a, a liberal moderate in that sort of sense i think
0: and but it's a topic he creeps up on it's not about i'm going to make a film about post war japan he just starts to tell a story about two people dating and you realize you know that he's really the undercurrent of that film and of many others to follow he is the reason this is happening is what happened to Japan after the war. Yeah.
1: And it's the great, like it's suddenly the fact now that, that it's the, it's become the gulf between the haves and the have nots um, that may not have been there before. And that, that, and that while much of, much of Japan is rebuild, it like is putting on a brave face and rebuild, trying to rebuild. There is a part that's possibly irrevocably broken. And it's, um, it is so sad. And it's, and it, it, but it's also so it's also incredibly relevant today because it's the kind of film that it shows that you know what in a, in a ca- particularly in a capitalist society um, there's a lot of time people with no money and felt made to feel like they don't have a place and that there's no the world isn't available to you like it's available to people with money and he doesn't want to take her on a date because he's got less money than she does and he's like oh well, I can't have you know I can't take a woman's money I can't have you paying for the whole thing and she kind of just. Like, she's endless optimism. She's kind of drank, yeah, let's go, let's do it. And then gradually you see, though, as much as he's trying to have fun, his pride is being eaten away and eaten yeah. away. And there's one instant incident that just breaks your heart where it just,
0: his pride completely disappears. Yeah.
1: But there's this incredibly audacious sequence toward the end, too. It,
0: magic realism. I think he just starts going into the whole, it just yes. becomes poetry at the end. It's amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, and has a character breaking the fourth wall and or, telling the audience get behind them
0: and do and do this thing.
1: And it's like, on one hand, you're, you're watching going, this could have been really awkward. <laughs> or this is... And another part of you saying, this is genius. Well, mm.
2: it's so interesting that, that he has this kind of optimistic slant to it. I know that he is kind of criticised for being almost a too optimistic or naive director. You compare that with a film 15 years later, High and Low, mm. which similarly deals with the haves and the have-nots, but that is a very bleak film, and it's definitely not a... Uh, a pleasant depiction of, see us, yeah. of the Have nots And uh, I don't Absolutely. know whether it's a personal shift. I mean, he's certainly still concerned about that issue but 15 years later.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I wouldn't call One Wonderful Sunday necessarily optimistic. I would call it hopeful, but at the same time, it retains that bleakness. It retains that, we're not getting out of this anytime soon. Yeah. So find you have films, to make the best
2: of it. I find them tremendously bleak, and I, I don't mean depressing, but... Mm. And I don't mean that he has no faith in humanity or something. I mean, that's a point he makes in Rashomon, that he does. But I think there is that kind of despairing nature to a lot of his films and certainly the characters in it. But the next film is where I believe that
1: Akira Kurosawa becomes capital A, Akira capital K, Kurosawa. The best best film uh, Orson Welles never made, yeah. And that is Drunken Angel. Yeah. Drunken Angel is... Dunning. This film blew my brains out. I, this th- is the first one he does
2: with Toshiro Mifune. Yes. Is that yes. yes. Now... I've got, yeah, that partnership.
1: <laughs> it, it's funny. I was going to say, um, uh, Susumu Fujima, who was in his early films, he played Senshiro Sagata. It's like, if Mifune is De Niro to um, to um, Kurosawa Scorsese, Fujima is his Harvey Keitel. <laughs>
0: It's <laughs> this guy he used early so a on. a small, guy. angry guy yeah, he grew yeah. up
2: with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: and then he suddenly found his muse in Mifune, and what a muse.
0: But that's another film that's, that's so steeped in realism and then goes into poetry at the end. It really suckers you in. Yeah, like, but that it's that noir
1: way. as well. Yeah. Like, it's. it's got this sort of... And it shows was uh, how much Curacao was influenced by American Hollywood films as well. Like, there's mm. so much noir like all this sort of... What's wrong baby? I'm hot can it. You know, all this sort of kind of, you know, jazz talk. Um, it's Drunken Angel is I, my kind of movie in every way. Like it's got a doctor who is trying to cure a young hood of tuberculosis and trying to get him away from crime and onto the right path. And it's not nearly as sanctimonious as it sounds. Like this doctor is completely full of piss and vinegar. Um, he's played by Takashi Shimura who is in Everything. His other, his Smart. other big muse. Yeah. Well, he's
2: actually in more than to the funeral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
1: yeah. I, I, he's he must be in all of, all but about three. I think he's in so many. Um, and yeah, he's, this doctor is full of piss and vinegar, and is you know will not think twice of telling, uh, you know, in a very nineteen forty eight way of telling gangsters to go fuck themselves to their face, mm. and you know, <laughs> it starts with realism. It there it has so much to say about post-war japan like i think it takes the the hint the hints that were that were uh, that were laid sprinkled throughout one wonderful sunday and hits them home with shattering force is it is such an amazing film and i and
0: possibly my favorite that's interesting because his next film is possibly my favorite. Straight, yeah, 49's nine's stray. Well, Dog. actually,
1: his next film was the Quiet Jewel, which
2: neither of us have seen. Oh, right, okay, yeah. Cheers, yeah. guys. Damn. Couldn't you? Uh, couldn't you have made the effort? It's
0: <laughs> right. We'll get to his. Uh, we'll get to his middle middle period. But then yes, we get yes, to Stray Dog. <laughs> stray Dog, uh, which is, I think, you know what, one of the top five film laws of all time. This wow. is this is like Bicycle uh, Thief. This is. Uh, Tiny actions having huge epic consequences. This is this is Hitchcock directing Seven. This is, this blew my mind. Wow, He's, Kurosawa we've already established is one of the most imitable directors of all time, and yet there is stuff in here that I've not seen anywhere else. And I've seen a lot of films made after this period, and it's almost like people were trying to copy it, copy him, but there was too much that they couldn't because there was so much that only Kurosawa could do. Mm. It's, I think it's uh, yet another perfect film but so influential and yet so... I found it a tiny bit drawn out.
1: Yeah? Yeah. I, I kind of began, my attention began to wander a bit in the midsection. Um, but uh, yeah, I look, I like Stray Dog a lot. Um, yeah. I think it gets better as its point becomes more cogent as we start sort of focusing on the parallels between Mifune's cop and the criminal who they're trying to catch mm. who weirdly we never see until the end. As you say, it's kind of got that seven sort of yeah. narrative thing. And... Just something else. A film that was influenced by Stray Dog very implicitly was Magnolia. Um, in particular, the John C. Riley plot. of, oh, of John course. C. Riley loses his gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But well, he,
0: he did the uh, the the very odd Capra esque scandal in 1950. Uh, Capra esque. I think it was a bit Capra esque. Yeah, I think. And I is that f- once the lawyer's plot starts taking over the film, it's a little bit because it's like halfway through the film he changes his mind about what it yes, and, is. Yes, and and this isn't the last time no, he does this either no. it becomes a little bit of a Kurosawa trait you start
1: <laughs> on one and again it's weird it's almost another thing that Tarantino's picked up it's this mm. it's this thing about starting the film we're going this way this is what the film's about and then halfway through we'll just pick it up and take it no actually I'm more interested in this guy yeah. and we'll just follow that person for the rest of the film um, yeah Scandal's It's funny, isn't it? It's it's an odd one. It's a little bit of a curio. (laughs) Now we're
0: into it because we're up to 1950 and Rashomon comes into play. It's the
2: film that everyone who's ever been to film school has watched. And should watch. And everyone should watch it. Regardless. (laughs) That I
1: have a couple of issues with. Okay, here we go. This was the sacrilege bit. I liked Rashomon a lot. Um, It's funny because being his shortest film in quite a period, and I think easily the shortest film he made after the war, there were points where it sort of seemed to kind of drag a little bit. Uh, I felt the the baby at the end just kind of comes out of nowhere. Like it feels very. Ta- I know what he. I know what point he's trying to make. Sure, but in the reality of the piece, it comes. It's a Deus ex machina. It comes out of nowhere. But it almost feels like he's gotten to this point, going, "Oh my god, people are going to think I'm a complete misanthropist. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna think I have no faith in the human race." whatsoever. Quick, throw a baby in there and have him be nice to it. And <laughs> that's kind of like, think, oh, that's right, we're,
2: oh, that's right. So he doesn't think we're all bad, he just thinks that, you know, we have baser impulses. I, I think you can forgive the deus ex machina because it's a morality tale. I mean, the film is those bookends, really. I mean, the, that final scene is kind of the key. And I think you do agree on that point that, you know, it's, it's an important aspect, but... Yeah, um, yeah, I just
1: wish he'd arrived at it in a more organic way. Sure. It
2: just felt really sudden to
1: me I, obviously, like, the structure was comp- is completely innovative the, um, even uh, some of the, uh, the camera angles are completely innovative um, Mifu- it was the start of seeing Mafune's range mm. he plays this completely psychotic off the hook kind of bandit um, <laughs> completely different to how anything we'd seen him play before maybe because it's, I, it was the first time I'd ever seen it um, when I watched it recently and whether it's just the, all those years of wait, you know, of uh, uh, being told that this was the, the, an amazing film. And to a certain extent, yes, it is. Um, to a certain extent, it is everything you've heard. But I guess, I don't know, maybe it crumbled a bit under the weight of expectations for me. I don't know. It, but, it, uh, but I like it a lot. Like, I'm not, I'm not hating on it. I just say, like, I love it, yeah, but yeah. with reservations.
2: Okay. It's interesting what you guys have said about his earlier films, how they have that magic realism at the end. Yeah. And then you look at Rashomon, where the medium comes out to give the testimony of you know the dead man. How it's amazing like, is that? We're just watching that. and you're just wow, like, oh, okay, this is happening now yeah. <laughs> and it's brilliant. <laughs> it's like How can you get away with that the, in this film? The and, dude and invented the exorcist. Yeah. <laughs> 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 They're talking in the vines. Blah, blah. And how, that oh. is actually one. I think that is up there with the scariest scenes because it so it's so that creepy. ultra-saturated daylight and it's just such a chilling moment seeing this medium yeah. you know, on the on the stand, essentially, uh, I love it. Uh, one thing that does trouble me about the movie is uh, the female character, and I guess her depiction in it. And I don't yeah. want to get into spoilers, but that is something. Any way you slice it, she's a pretty awful person. Yeah, and I think that's Women a bit are unfair rip- considering what ostensibly happens to her. Yeah, you know, we're talking in vague terms, but and I think that is something that uh, reoccurs in a few of his films. He doesn't have the best female protagonists. Uh, I don't think it's. I don't yeah. think it's. Uh, and again, you know, there's a big gap in my knowledge. Here, yeah, so yeah, if yeah. there's any, no, please, I'd say overall, that's probably true.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's, that may be one of the few chinks in his armor, yeah. which which is weird because he's such a humanist.
2: Yeah, and and, and look, in a few years' time, he's going to give us essentially Princess Leia. You yes. know, So so and, that's and very and true. I, yeah. d- I don't think it's a problem that deflates any of his films, mm. but I guess when you're looking at you know the overall you know the the recurring motifs. Of his uh of his films, it is kind of a disconcerting one. Yeah. Mm. Then uh, yeah, in fifty one he goes to the idiot, which
0: is uh, you, you've got to see just because it's Kurosawa and Dostoyevsky, and that's a that's a match made in some parallel dimension that you know you <laughs> would never imagine. Well, the thing <laughs> Who is, couldn't he couldn't just adapt. He, <laughs> uh, yeah yeah he couldn't just adapt. You know some pot boiler. Yeah. You know?
1: um, but the thing is, Kurosawa is really in, was really into Russian novelists and was mm. hugely influenced by Russian literature, and in, and Dostoevsky was his favourite author. And at the time, The Idiot was actually his most personal, the most personal project he'd made to that point, because mm. it was something that, it, it, one of his favourite novels and from his favourite writer, and he just, he really wanted to see it through. And the original cut was something like 265 minutes. Which is gigantic. And they eventually, mm. um, somebody, apparently one of the censors said, you need to cut this in half. And he goes, fine, I'll cut it lengthways. Yeah. <laughs> I will literally cut each uh, frame. He in invented half. letterboxing. <laughs> 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 but he eventually got it down to the one hundred and sixty-one minutes it is now. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know if it entirely works as powerfully as it wanted to, mm. but I still
0: think it's damned compelling and and has moments of true poignance. And fifty-two Akiru. Uh, which is when I really started to notice that, you know, he
2: had a big thing about mortality. That was, yeah. uh, that was weighing heavily on his mind. I mean, Capra has been thrown around a few times already tonight, and mm. Akira is basically, it's a wonderful life if Capra committed to the premise. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. It, it, you know, when it has that kind of, you know, second act or third act shift. Yeah. And it's kind of, it kind of catches you off guard, even though it was See, that's another written fi- in the stars, really. It was, you know...
1: It's another film that where he just wrenches the film and goes in yeah. this other direction. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, but it seems so much more organic in this film. Yeah. And it's like, as you say, it's it's where it was meant to go. Yeah. It couldn't have gone any other way. But
2: you're just kind of amazed that someone would commit to it. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just brave. And this movie this movie makes me cry every time I watch it. Yeah, And I'm not afraid to say that. And I want to give a shout out, out to, in case he's listening, <laughs> the, uh, the composer Fumio uh, Hayasaka, who did the score for Rashomon and Akira and Seven Samurai. But I think uh, his work in Akira is the best. And it, it's kind of playing on this, uh, this Japanese... Um, a lullaby called Gondola no Uti. Right, and it yeah. is, it, I mean, that has to be one of the most beautiful themes in movie history. It's a gorgeous yeah.
1: film. Um, I do feel a little bit low, like if they'd stayed with the old man putting the thing together, I would have bawled a lot more, I think. I, I was almost thankful that we kind of went to this other situation because it was like, okay, cool. I can hold on the tears a little bit to get to know these
2: characters. Um, yeah, but it avoids having that kind of stepmom. Finale, which is always my go-to, you know, <laughs> reference for a movie about dying people that is not good. That is schmaltzy. Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of it. It he has this really ingenious way of circumventing the schmaltz, yes. but still giving you that gut punch ending that's really beautiful mm. instead okay. of really sad, and I, and I love it. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I couldn't agree more. And
1: also too, it addresses a point that is in, an essential truth that no other film I've seen tackles it. It's this whole thing about. We hear a story, we see a movie, we read a book we about how we need to make the most out of our lives. It's like, yes, we should live for tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and we do and then the next day comes and we forget about it yeah. and we're back to where we were and we're just slogging through again. It's like, none of us commit to living for tomorrow. None yeah. of us ever do it. We get caught up in the minutia of everyday life. And Ikuru hits that smack on the head and I love Such that about it. Such complex
0: messages he has. Yeah. Now, even more than Rashomon, I got to say, Seven Samurai is the def- redefining cinema film. That, you know, I already said my piece before about how, <laughs> uh, you know, how great it is. But it, it really is. It is the, it is the template of an action film. Even more so than Towering Inferno, it is the template of the modern action film. It is a perfect, perfect. And movie. it shows off his gift for character. Yeah.
1: Um, and and building up the building up the team dynamic and it's so good I mean my one thing is does not have to be 207 minutes I think it
2: does per samurai it's not that long
1: (laughs) 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 but no it's it's an it's god it's a classic it is like
2: capitals capital C classic this is one of those films where I have when I'm thinking of my favourite film of all time like it's a contender like it just cycles between this and the good the bad the ugly and vertigo like it's right 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 up there and I think I think it is pretty much close to perfect for every reason you guys have listed already and and like you said yeah it defined action movies this is not some boring like you know people who are like I don't want to sit through 200 and whatever of a foreign black and white yeah I don't want to see it this is a kick-ass action movie it's why we have Bond movies and Die Hard and and as far as war movie go uh, war movies go which is, it's not really a war movie, but I can't think of any other action film that uh, displays the strategies of battle yes. so effectively yeah. as that, you know, giant final act. And yeah, there are really beautiful moments in the end, uh, it was rather three quarters of the way through. There's that fireside sequence where there's a revelation about a sort of a romantic relationship. Yeah. That's really beautiful. It's like, what is this beautiful... Yeah. Human moment doing in this great samurai action film. Yeah, it's it is it is perfect, yeah. and that is not even hyperbolic when you're talking about Seven Samurai.
0: Now, Fifty Fives I Live in Fear is probably the defining film about post-war Japan. Uh, I don't even know where you want to take this discussion because you could talk about Mifune being unrecognizable and proving yeah. why he's the greatest actor. You could talk about how the complexity of what was going on in Japanese psyches. There are two very clear different points of view presented in this film and you can totally understand both and mm-hmm. they're both born of pragmatism and it's just this intensely complex and really heart-wrenching at the end when you realize you know he forgot to carry the one there was one part of the equation he forgot about and you go oh my god what yes there is there is more to this you know and it just it, it's like a mandelbrot it just keeps going and going and going in this you know, you—it's c- nothing is black and white. There are always those shades of grey that you forget about. Mm. As tempting as as it is to take sides at different
1: times, it r- simply refuses to let you. Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's um, and it's that yeah, it's that sort of the the the, the pre-war and post-war generations of Japan, I guess, and mm. and um, the you know ever, and I mean, a country that was hit by atom bombs. I mean, you need there's got to be some dare I say fallout you know psychologically from that you know there's there and and this film addresses that um,
0: in a in a really um, poignant way and then throne of blood in fifty seven my favorite Adaptation. Oh of Macbeth my God! Ever the fastest adaptation of Macbeth ever. He doesn't waste is- time. He found the heart of that film. I think Macbeth oh. is one of the most deceptively impenetrable films, uh, sorry plays, <laughs> plays yeah. that Shakespeare ever wrote, and I th- and I think it's very hard to find the heart of it. And I, yeah, I, I think yeah, I he think it hits it a
1: bang on. It, it doesn't stop to take a breath. It yeah. is so brilliant,
0: and the costume design in particular blew me away in that film. I wanted one of those outfits. Oh, are <laughs> incredible. I uh, did lower depths in '57. He did Hidden Fortress in '58, which you know, I for my money, his best looking film of all. I think that's his most beautifully shot film.
2: It's definitely not his best film. No, no, right? I don't think it it's but his best. No, but no, it's like I think it's.
0: it's I think it's George Lucas's best. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yes, we should mention that the structure
2: of Hidden Fortress and characters
1: and, and characters and, and everything.
2: Yeah. It's. I mean, it's not a Star Wars is not obviously a direct remake of the Hidden Fortress, but but it comes close. Come on, and look to Shira Mufune. He gave us Han Solo. That's... Yeah. Like, is he on. the Solo character? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sold. <laughs> it is. I <laughs> have to see <laughs> this movie today. I mean, instead of C-3PO and R2-D2, you have a couple of peasants. Yeah, but yeah. But Princess Leia is the same. Uh, if, I, what's missing is the villain, is the Darth Vader. There is.
0: And I've got to say, if if in Empire, you know, 3 po and, and R2-D2 had both considered raping Leia, I yes. gotta say, so, uh, you know, if he'd been brave enough to <laughs> take all those elements,
2: what? And and again, we're kind of talking about his treatment of women. That's a comic subplot. Yes, <laughs> in, 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 yes, yes. <laughs> that's pretty disturbing. Misjudged. Yeah. But it is it is it's in there. Luckily, oh. you, you
0: feel a bit relieved because she can kick their asses, yes. you know, seven times over. So you don't feel too yeah. worried because you know they they're never going to be able to. Exactly. So, but it's still worrying that they're you know yeah. going there.
2: Still a fun movie though, and we have uh,
0: we have to be fair. Lucas
1: has always been completely upfront about yes. sure, yeah, Hidden yeah, Fortress's yeah. influence on Star Wars. Leone
2: wasn't about uh, mm. remaking your essentially. Yeah. He didn't say that. I, I think it even went to a lawsuit. I, I did hear that. Yeah, check up on that. But um, mm. yeah, yeah. But Lucas has given it a skew.
1: I find it interesting in his filmography at this point. He alternates between feudal, uh, feudal Japan, film set in feudal Japan, and Noirs. Yeah, for quite some time, from basically from when that post-war period ends with "I Live in Fear" in fifty-five, from fifty-seven's "Throne of Blood" through to high and low in 63 it's feudal noir feudal noir feudal noir sure. well, there might be two in a row and then one or the other and, but yeah he basically he's returning to the the fertile ground that that's, it seems that the genres that that were his biggest successes being um, the noir of Drunken Angel and Stray Dog and the, the, the feudal Japan of um, Rashomon and The Seven Samurai. And I found that really interesting. It was like, for a while, he was deciding to play to his forehand a little bit and explore mm. different themes, but within his wheelhouse.
0: And if you're talking about Kurosawa influencing all filmmakers, then you know one of his biggest influences is obviously Shakespeare. Because you know, aside from the direct adaptations he did, like like with Throne of Blood... I gotta say, ba- the bad sleep well in 1960 felt a lot like Hamlet to me. There's a lot, a well, lot apparently of it was a loose
1: adaptation of Hamlet. Was it okay? Because I didn't hear that very loose. Yeah, there's a lot,
0: of, just, yeah. Yeah. There a lot of indecisiveness going. in this film. Yeah. Well, there's it, it's you know it's a revenge plot played out, and I was watching thinking, okay, he's very Hamlet like, and. That's Claudius and that's Gertrude <laughs> yeah. and that's and uh, yeah, I was starting to piece it together and I, you know, I thought I was under something, but obviously, you know, no, people you have had fifty years to talk about <laughs> this before I got anywhere near it. But it's an uh, it's an amazing revenge film that never allows you moral absolution. You know, that complexity always comes into play. Um, but then sixty one, you Now here we go.
2: Okay, we yeah. want to talk about an action movie. <laughs> This is uh, so much fun, this movie. It's, it again, is it's yeah. ridiculous fun. <laughs> Anyone who is, doesn't want to see the foreign black and white film, this is just more yeah. entertaining than you know, Captain America or whatever we've discussed yeah. tonight yeah. or in the past few years. This about. is the one I think I would show
1: people before Seven Samurai. Sure. I mean, partly because of the length. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but this it's is the one I was like, this kind of is how much ridiculous, giddy, crazy fun these movies can be. Mm. I, first time I watched Jimbo," I was in my house by myself and cheered at the end <laughs> cheered aloud it is so much fun it is it's between this and Drunken Angel for my favourite Kurosawa film I absolutely adore I think I think Yajimbo is perfect
0: it's, it is brilliant. I, w- I was less enamored with the sequel, Sanjiro the yes. following year. Yeah. It's still good. Like, it's really, really yeah, good, yeah. but Yajimbo's the one.
2: Uh, again, another interesting choice from Fune, to kind of pull it back. Yeah, Play yeah. a really cool, and I, I mean, obviously he's very cool, but I mean, he's a very cool-headed character. He could have been the scheming, you know, winking at the camera guy, and he's not that. Yeah. And again, he literally created another of the most iconic Action characters of all time. Once again, yes.
0: Sixty three's high and low is, you know, a- again I'm going to say Hitchcockian because it just feels like such a Hitchcockian uh, potboiler. But it's it's one of the first examples of a police procedural that I think is it the first? I don't know. No, no, no. Oh, no come the on. Americans M has it by about oh, forty M, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The obviously. Americans were doing
1: like noirs and gangster films that but had police but perception but the I, I know I where you're CSI coming CSI from template yes. almost, and there's stuff know. like I mean there was stuff like Naked City and all that sort of thing all the okay, yeah. on films
2: in the, f- in the 50s this is probably the only Kurosawa film that I've seen that doesn't totally work for me Sure, I don't love how it goes from focusing on this really human story this really you know what would you do in that situation moral story about a man uh, a rich man who uh, his chauffeur's child gets kidnapped because the kidnappers mistook it for his child, yeah, and he has to consider whether he pays the ransom and renders himself broke to save another man's child. The movie Kurosawa, as you know, as he is wont to do, he moves away from that then focuses on the police, and then finally we end up in the grimy understreets with the villains. He so mo- he
0: moves from the high to
2: the low, yeah, literally, yeah.
0: and admits it in the title. But then, yeah,
2: in sixty-five, that you know,
0: greatest collaboration of all time between star and director. It's what I'm, you know, I'm calling it now. It was the best collaboration ever comes to an end with redbeard Mifune's last film with Kurosawa um, which you know is is a melodrama it's he it made me think that he would make great television because he's really interested in long-form storytelling hmm. this is a film where, that sets up a premise and rather than coming to its logical conclusion he come by the end of the film he comes to it and then comes to another one, and then finds something else to explore. So, And it really felt like a TV show edited down into a movie, a great TV mm-hmm. show. But it felt like he wanted to spend more time with these characters than a movie length would allow. Well, then he goes into, uh, into a, an odd period. I haven't seen uh, uh and I said that as quickly as possible because I'm not sure how to pronounce it, <laughs> but uh, Dersu Uzala, is that right? Yes. Yeah, Dersu in Zalala. 75. So strange to see a film in English and in colour from
2: him wow now in this English. is interesting because this is post his suicide attempt I believe I did not know about that he, he tried to he slashed his wrist and his throat multiple Jesus, times Jesus. and he survived uh, so he went through a very dark period so I'm kind of intrigued as to how these and later films fared
1: and it became harder for him to make films as well that's why after Redbeard they're all five years apart yes um, mm-hmm. until Dreams in 1990 it's almost like they came out every five years for like sure, clockwork. Yeah. It's kind of weird. But yeah, well, it's hard for him to get financed.
0: They they feel so much like, you know, what happened to Hitchcock in his last few films. You know, he he was still doing things of very high quality, but it felt like he was out of his comfort zone and that the world had moved on from the type of film he wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And I certainly got that feeling for all the quality of, you know, uh, uh, of like Kagamushu in nineteen eighty. You know, it does feel like he is at the end of his career, even with Ran, which, and i got to say with yeah, Ran. Because Ran's supposed to be amazing. Ran is amazing, and I watched a version without subtitles, and luckily <laughs> I know King Lear well enough that I was able to follow it, but it was also a testament to his visual storytelling, that even the fact that I was able to follow the story perfectly well in <laughs> Japanese. I love that you yeah. watched it without subtitles. I, well, I wasn't <laughs> going to, and or? then it just, I couldn't stop watching. Like, I couldn't turn it off. And, you know, that's, that's the Kurosawa effect. You know, you cannot mm. stop watching his story. He films.
2: directed that from will wheelchair, because he broke his spine as well. I mean, really? the guy lived, to a long, you know, he lived a full life and he made a lot of brilliant films, but yeah. he certainly was making them against the odds in the last kind of 15 years. That's incredible. He batted himself around a bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, none of us have seen
0: Dreams in 1990 or Rhapsody in August from 91, but his last film in 93, Matadayo... <laughs> Matayayo. Matayayo? Mm-hmm. Okay. I've I got to say, it, it's a very charming film, but it really only works I- in the context of his career, I think. Mm. I think it works as... He takes a bow... You know and it's a very well deserved bow, it seems to have become a lot more reflective in those last from
1: what I know of those last three films mm. It's definitely a reflective period, yeah, it seems like it's someone that's kind of gearing towards who knows the end is coming, yeah and decides I want to sign off my legacy in an elegant way um, <laughs> which is kind of nice because few you know,
0: few people get to do that but I think I was always destined to to love Kurosawa because my parents went to see Kagamushu when it came out here. And they left after half an hour because my mother started giving birth to me. So I was that desperate to see Kurosawa, that I was like, "What, what are we watching? I'm, I'm coming out." So that is wow. Yeah, I was born, born during Kagamushu. Born during Kagamusha and your first film you ever
1: saw was King Kong. I, I've got a pretty good pedigree, that but is yeah. Crazy.
0: So I and I only found out recently
2: that that was that Kurosawa effect on my creation <laughs> sort of, you know that's pretty good that's pretty good cred my my parents always uh, tell the story that um they were watching back to the future at a drive-in when i started kicking and and that was the wow. sign of i would like back to the future and i really right. like that film. so you were yeah. both <laughs>
1: born you were essentially kicking ready to come out of the movies
0: yep oh, i'm i feel like a fraud <laughs> <I don't laughs> yeah, Have yeah, this background you. this has been probably the most extraordinary career i've ever looked over in, in such a short amount of time um he is absolutely now one of my favourites and I'm flabbergasted at his at his talent. But it's 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 always fun to be surprised by a master
1: too, you know? It's always yeah. fun as like the you know, the so called minor works. Uh for me just as major as the so called major works. Exactly. Um, and there is
2: that moment of that the the switch just flicking your brain where you know Kurosawa's meant to be good. It's a bit like Citizen Kane, you know it's meant to be good, but when you sit down you think it'll be overhyped. But no, it actually really is that good. And that's what it's like watching every one of Kurosawa's films they Mm. really are quite phenomenal
0: absolutely nail on the head thank you so much for joining us Simon really appreciate you coming down
2: thank you for having me again I I apologise for my uh, Kurosawa incompetence but I've been re-inspired by uh, by your uh, comments to go and and seek out all those other films
1: Uh, yeah no we thank you for uh, forcing us to do it (laughs) I'm just yeah uh, absolutely wrapped love it
0: and we'll see the rest of you next month keep watching stuff. Oh,